Dave Spikey, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. It's nice to have you here. Nice to be here. I like London. Do you? Yeah, people go on about this North-South divide. I like coming down. It's the travelling that gets me. I just, I like the train. I come down on Virgin West Line. It gets a lot of stake, but I like it. It's two and a half hours from Preston. The only problem with it is the old people can't use the toilets. You're always walking in on all women in the toilet because they don't know to shut the door properly. You know, when you press that big curved door, you'll press it. You know, you've got, it's always vacant. Oh, she sat there reading Bella on the toilet because they've not figured out that you have to press a lock button as well. Sorry, love. That's the only problem with Virgin Trends. So people will know you, I guess, mostly from having co-written and starred in Phoenix Nights. Yeah. And also being the team captain on 8 out of 10. Yeah, yeah. The four series, yeah. But actually, you weren't going to be a comedian at all. You were a totally different job. It's all a big accident. And I'm sure some of your listeners will go, yeah, it should have stayed an accident. Um... I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. I worked in the NHS for 30 years. I was um, a biomedical scientist. I've always been surrounded by comedy. I've always loved comedy. And my daddy was a great man who um, was a painter and decorator, my dad. Self-employed, no job too small. And he was self-taught. He had no academic qualifications, but he loved the arts. And he, he taught us all about music. He encouraged us to read and write. And he had, like, impressionist art books at home. And I had two up, two down in Bolton. But his big love was comedy. And I, was, I grew up surrounded by radio comedy, like theatre of the mind and all that, and television comedy. One of my happiest memories is me and my dad sliding off the couch. You know when you can't breathe, you're laughing so much and you actually slide off your chair. <laughs> Doing that to Morecambe and Wise, I think it was. And so it's always been in there, you know. And uh, when I was at school, I got all my essays used to come back and say, another good essay from David, but why does it always have to have a comedy element to it? And I wasn't trying. That's just how I was seeing things, you know. And when I started work at the hospital, it sort of continued. I got involved in the review society and wrote sketches and directed and... Still just for fun, you know. And then somebody will say at some stage, you know, you're really funny, you should be a comedian. And you think, you know what, I'm hilarious, you're right. Why have I never thought of that? And I sort of, that's how it started. And I just started doing open spots and talent shows. And Didn't you do one on TV? Didn't you do New, oh, new I did Faces? New Faces in 1987. That's when I was in a double act, Spiky and Saki. And um, we came third to a Todd and Whippet juggler. It was one of them shows, you know. A bloke played a radiator. I've got sixpence, jolly jolly sixpence. And we came, we came about third. And it was really mad because we'd never really had a paid gig. We just went for the audition and did it. And then that petered out. He, my mate, who I did the double act with, he was a teacher, so he wanted to concentrate on that. And I packed it in for a few years and then took it up again, yeah, and started that road. What was it that made you take it up again? It was that thing about, you know, you've, you've amassed... Some, I used to write all the routines for the double acts, and I sort of got in the habit, and I started sending them off to television for the shows that were on at the time, which were like the Grumbleweed show and the Russ Abbott show. And I started getting stuff on, and it was a big thrill, you know. And I just had so much material, I thought, it's a shame to waste it. I'll try and do it on my own. Uh, the trigger was, we got asked to do a talent show as a double act in, um, oh, where was it, Scarborough. And my mate was sort of tiring of the whole thing, said, oh, I'm not doing it, I'm not going to Scarborough, do a talent show. And I went, well, I'll go on my own, you know. And he went, well, go on your own if you want. So I went home to Scarborough, and I won it on my own, and I'd never really done stand-up. And, and it, you get hooped on it, and you get hooped on the sound of laughter, etc. And so I just started all over again and I entered the Northwest Comedian of the Year competition in the early 90s, which is a, still is a big deal up there. Jason Manford won it the other year and um, Peter Cares won it and uh, before me, Steve Coogan, Carolina Hearn. And so I won that. And that sort of was a bit of a boost as well. 
But over the years, I still was just doing it part-time because I was doing well at the hospital as well. I got my fellowship at the Institute of Biomedical Science. I was doing all that haematology research and stuff. But at the same time, you, no matter what you do, if you've got anything about you, you push yourself, don't you? You want to get better and better. Even if it's just a hobby, you want to get to the next level. I'll, I'll do that, I'll do that. And like within, I say within, but it was quite a long time, within about six or seven years, I found myself working with all the top comics. Just suddenly, and that's how it happened. It was just crept up on me, really. And so was there a point where you like gave up your job at the hospital? Or yeah, it wasn't until 2000. Really? <laughs> I know, yeah. Hang on, so between now and then, because you did chain letters. I did chain letters in 1997. And they started showing it again to my embarrassment, to my eternal shame. I got asked, I did used to do the studio warm-ups. I did that thing where you go being a, a warm-up man for audiences, which is a tough gig, you know. And um, I used to do chain letters and a crosswits. I used to do for Tom O'Connor and uh, a few other things. And... Um, they had this reputation or this tradition, if you like, on chain letters that they had a different horse. I don't know if you've noticed, they have a different horse for every single series that they did. Andrew O'Connor did it, and Ted Robbins did it, and Alan Stewart. And Jeremy Beadle. Jeremy Beadle did it, of course. And I just got a phone call from the producer and said, You know, we're auditioning for a new presenter. Why don't you come and audition? And I said, Well, I'm just a studio warm up. And they went, No, come and audition. We all like you up here, sort of thing. And I went up and auditioned, and I put together a really. I worked hard on the audition. You know, you had to present a show, basically. Because I knew the show inside out, I was comfortable with the crew and all that got the gig and it's mad because I worked at the hospital till 2000 as I say so were you still working at the yeah, hospital when you were doing yeah, this I took, I took two weeks off work and did <laughs> five chain letters a day <laughs> for, for like 10 days so I did about 40 or 50 chain letters it's ridiculous I hold my hand up and say that on, I did about 40 I think and on about half of them I'm rubbish well it was just so new to me really you know and you went into the studio and um, in those days there was no autocue there was no earpiece so you didn't know what was going on you had to just fly by the seat of your pants you had five shows a day which is hard work, three contestants in each show and you've got to remember their hilarious story, which often isn't. I like ducks, not proper ducks. I collect ducks, I put them on the wall. I've got hundreds of ducks. All right, moving on. All that sort of thing, you know. And then you've got to remember what camera you're on and every 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 round's got a different set of rules, blah, blah, blah. And you don't put any of yourself into it. You can't, I suppose, with the confidence of doing more and more, you would find time to do that. But because I was new at it, didn't you once have an accident on set? I didn't actually. I got trapped in your way. I don't know if you remember the beginning of Chain Letters. It had a big board that all the letters were on. And as the title tune went on, it went, Chain, 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 Letters. Like that. And in that gap was the board move. You walked from behind the scenes. What between. And I left it too late. I was chatting. And it went, Chain, 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 Chain. Ah! <laughs> Just stuck in between the board and the side. And I did one show, if anybody's ever got it. I'd love to get it on DVD. I was that bored because obviously five shows a day and the same, one in the afternoon you do for three audiences and they're fed up by the time it's the third show. They've seen, and they want to go home basically. And I was in the makeup room getting changed, getting makeup on for the third show. Quick turnaround. And I was so fed up. And I saw on the shelf a wig. And not a comedy wig, just, and you know, I've got white hair, obviously. And um, I saw this just ordinary wig, just a brown wig with a parting in it. And I said, can I wear that for this show? And the makeup girl said, well, I don't really know. I'd have to ask the producer. I went, no, just let me wear it. I've not got time. They're on the gallery. And she went, no, I can't. I said, just give me the wig. So I, I put, and remember the audience has seen me for two shows. The crews obviously know me. So it went, chain, 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 letters. And the screen went round and I'm still there with like that. And, and the, all the cameras crew came for me and the cameras going, what the? And the audience started laughing because they'd seen me. And I did the whole show without mentioning it. And it's there. It's on, <laughs> oh, I, really? Yeah. So they didn't have to stop it no, the audience? Right? Uh, no, they let it go, let me go with it. And the amazing thing was, and this was a complete, a complete coincidence, one of the contestants, her funny story was, she said, I got thrown out of an interview last week. And I said, oh, really? That's, that's how embarrassing is that, getting thrown out of an interview? I said, why? She said, oh, well, the bloke who interviewed me had this really bad wig on. And I kept laughing at it. And I just took it dead straight, and I'm looking at the audience going, 
that's wrong, isn't it? That is just wrong. <laughs> and so I played up on it. And in the interval, the producer came running out of the gallery and I thought, I'm in trouble here. She came running over to me and she said, Dave, and I went, look, I'm really sorry, but whatever. And she went, no, what we should do for this half, after the interval, is part it on the other side and see if anybody notices. And so the setting half of the show, I've got the party on the other side of the wig. So they ran with it. <laughs> Probably brightened up what is a very average show. So you were still working in the hospital. Did you get recognised by patients? I never, because I was in the labs, we didn't really go on the wards a lot. You okay, know? so um, you didn't pass them in the corridor. Well, you sort of did, and you'd sort of get a second loop. But it's that thing about where they see you out of context in a completely different setting, they just shake their head and move on, you know. So then you met Peter Kay a couple of years after that compare. That's right, yeah. Well, I met him round about that time because I was compering the Northwest Comedian of the Year competition, which was a tradition. If you'd won it, you compared the final. And it was a great final because Peter was in it and Johnny Vegas was in it. And Johnny was the Red Hot favourite. And then Peter came in and right at the end and blew everybody away. And he came out of nowhere because nobody really knew him. And he lived just around the corner from the hospital, literally. I know that's an overused word, but he was five minutes away. And so I spent most of my lunch times down there and we just got straight away writing. We found we had a lot of comedy influences in writing like you know Woody Allen and Mel Brooks and people like that and comedy heroes like Ronnie Barker so we made a lot in common so we just started writing together straight away and he wrote some of the links because he had to write like 40 odd links for chain letters so he helped me write some of those as well. You did a couple of one-offs together and then you did yeah. that Peter Kay thing. Yeah I love that I think you know everybody goes on about Phoenix Nights I think that Peter Kay thing is, is as good as because it was all different they were all spoof documentaries with different subjects and there was three writers because Neil Fitzmaurice came in and gave us a different angle because me and Peter had very much the same idea about comedy. And it, that works really well, I think. But Peter's brilliant in them. He does about 20 characters in them and they're brilliant. And, and we all wrote different wedges of different... I mean, there was one called Leonard, the oldest paper boy in Britain that I wrote a lot for. And I love that one. And Peter's brilliant in that. And then there was one about an ice cream man and Peter wrote most of that. So it was like big chunks were written and, and then we all came together, you know. But I love that series. I think it's brilliant. And it won a uh, British comedy. Yeah, it did. Yeah. And one of the episodes was... In the club. In the club. And Channel 4 said, pick one of those and make a series out of it. And In the club is the one that stuck out because we loved it most because of the characters. But also, with a club, you can have anything happening and anybody coming in every week. Originally, this is... I don't think I've ever said this in this before. It's only cropped up in my head. Is um, It was going to be called Ukrainian Nights because most northern towns as a Polish club or a Ukrainian club when we were growing up and that was one of the social clubs that people used to go to and we both knew the Ukrainian club in Bolton we were going to call it that and then we had the idea of it burning down and coming rising from the flames and we changed it to the Phoenix yeah that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So from that, it was hugely successful. Mm. You won the British Comedy Award, People's Choice. You got nominated for Best Newcomer. Best oh, so Newcomer. You... Can you imagine that at my age? <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? Did you write the part for yourself of Jerry Sinclair? No, we, no. The, on Phoenix Nights, what we did was we all got together and we got this office and we all went in and we all had an idea what to write in that scene. Peter sat at the computer and me and Neil sat on either side of him and went, right, let's start writing it. And it was impossible. You can't do it that way. You absolutely, you just end up fighting. I mean, almost coming to blows about what's a funnier pie. You know, in a certain scene, what's a funnier pie, cheese and onion or chicken and mushroom? Well, it's chicken and mushroom, obviously. Well, no one of you thinks it's cheese and onion. And you have this massive row. Half an hour later, you're going, we're arguing about a pie here. But it's important. The comedy value is important. So eventually what we did was we said, look, we know what's going to happen in this scene. Let's decide that now and that scene and that scene. We'll all go away and write our own version of that scene and bring them back on disc. We load them all on the computer and then we'll amalgamate the scenes. We'll pick the best bits out of everybody's. And of course, that helps because other things spin off that. When you see what he's written, you think, yeah, and we could do that. And yeah, we could have that in the background. And, and we laid it and laid it with gag after gag and sight gags. And the great thing is, if three of you are writing it and you have a rule that you don't move off a scene until all three of you are happy with it, it really works because, you know, I think too often you see a sitcom on television and you sort of know 
with a single writer. He's looked at it and thought, that's it, that's done. But you can always add something to it. And if there's three of you, especially if one's coming in from left field and going, we're missing a trick here because if he's doing that, why don't we do that? And you go, yeah, that's right. And I think that's why good comedy series, you can return to them and return to them and still find something new. Well, I think that's, for me, is the yeah. joy of Phoenix Nights, mm. is that there's so much in there yeah. that you never get every gag on the first watch. You Maybe don't. You go back, you're like, oh. And the great thing is people like, and it's you get this high at that cult tag that things get. But you, if you write it like that, you'll get people, as you say, noticing stuff and other people not noticing it. So when they're talking about the show the day after or whatever, they'll say, on oh, that bit with the dwarfs, what about that? And they go, what what bit? And you go, you know, when they did that? Oh, I didn't see that. So they go back and watch it again. They go, yeah, that. But did you see that bit? And we did. We put so much in there. You inevitably miss stuff. Even if it was just a poster on a wall or something on the radio, we had a DJ on the radio, like a, a gag that was sort of almost, you know, subconscious you got sort of thing. And that's thing. And having a real audience helped sell the show as well. We used the actual club's real audience for the gig and we filmed all the scenes on stage during the day and then we got the real audience in it and I just turned the cameras on them and did the scenes for them and that was their natural reaction. And with your part in it, so you'd done like bits of acting at the... No, that was the first thing I ever, ever did. Oh, really? Yeah, and I had to audition for it. Did you? Yeah, which was quite scary. Well, I, you know, I was in hospital for 30 years and Phoenix Nights, I, um, went, I'll jump a bit because I'll get back to the audition, but um, I finished work on the... Uh, it's quite emotional. I've been there 30 years. I finished working in the haematology department on the Friday the 13th, as it turns out, Friday the 13th of October. And then... On the Monday, I was sat in the pouring October rain, cold and miserable, dressed as a giant berry, thinking, how did it come to this? <laughs> how, how surreal is that? But yeah, I had to audition for it because I never acted. Actually, Peter said, because he was heavily involved in the production of it, he said, you should do it. And I said, yeah, but if I do it and I'm rubbish, people will say he's only doing it because he wrote it. So I sort of said, no, I need to audition. For me as well, I need to audition. I had to go to this big studio with a director and the production and all the crew and but I saw I knew Jerry. I knew him inside out, so that was obviously in my favour. When you gave up work, mm. was that like a big decision? You it, know, what did your family and friends think about it? It wasn't. It wasn't a big decision. I'd done 30 years. I'd sort of done my time, if you like, and I'd done my shifts. I'd done early days. I'd done emergency on call, working 36 hours, going in the middle of the night, cross-matching blood and coagulation tests and all that. And so I was sort of worn down by all that. But also I'd done so well, this is the paradox of, of working there, is I'd done so well and gained so much expertise in really what were then obscure areas of haematology for a small general hospital in terms of like, I did a lot of pioneering work for the hospital in um, testing for genetic abnormalities of hemoglobin and I introduced all the cytochemistry techniques for leukaemia screening and stuff like that, um, which are pretty routine now, but we, for a general hospital we hadn't got them. And I loved all that, obviously. That is fascinating and that is really rewarding, but the better you do, the less you do of it because they move you into our office because, you know, management, you've got a management hat on as well. And towards the end, I was angry and frustrated and the bureaucracy just got more... And everything you read about the NHS is totally true. I mean, I'm maybe speaking out of turn because it's so long ago, uh, 2000 I left. But, um, you know, I go in the office every morning and before I can even get to doing my electrophoresis and chromatography for my hypo with separation of hemoglobins and whatever, I was uh, having to do like health and safety reports and having to do... We've got accreditation coming up, got investors in people coming up. You know, we've got a meeting with that about personal development plans and uh, COSH, I don't know if you've ever heard of COSH, chemicals or substances, hazardous to health reports on everything you've got in the lab and risk assessments, on, you know it, you've heard it time and time again. And it, eventually that took over and I wasn't doing any of the lab work and I'm thinking, well, who's doing my job because somebody less qualified than me? So it's getting, when the time came, I just sidestepped. I went from the hospital on a Friday to the comedy world on the Monday and never looked back. And I sometimes feel guilty about that, but... I did my time. Well, actually, Phoenix Nights was a huge success straight off. 
Well, it was. And it, yeah, it was. But um, Channel 4 sort of hid it away at about 11 o'clock or something like that on a, on a Friday night. So again, it got discovered. And so by the time the second series came out, there was massive anticipation. And yeah, and it. But you had the British Comedy Award, yeah. People's Choice won. That was when you, as we mentioned, yeah. got nominated for Best Newcomer, it got mm. nominated for BAFTA. Yeah. It won a bunch of others. When that happened, when it kind of exploded, did that massively change your life? Did you find, because it's not like you were someone who was brand new and then you're just going, this is my no. first job. You've had, had this other... No, it did massively change because, yeah, obviously, what success sort of breeds success. If you've, if you've got the ammunition to deliver, so when you get your chance, you've got quality to back it up. So I'd done all the years on the circuit. So obviously it was a springboard for me to tour and do bigger shows than I was doing and, you know, do my own theatre shows and stuff like that. So but just even in terms of day-to-day stuff, like getting recognised and... You oh, know, yeah, you, but I've lived where I've lived in... Uh, this is so parochial. I lived in this little village in near Charlie for, like, 20-odd years. So before I even thought of doing comedy and all my mates are my mates and um, I go down the pub now every night and I meet my mates and it's just... Dave, it's just people know me before all that happened and they're all like good lads. I play football with them. I still play football with them. They're all in the building trade or whatever, princes or that, the other. And so it keeps you grounded. And yeah, if I go in Charlie and if I go in Bolton or go in Manchester, you get people shouting, Jerry the Berry! Or um, give me five, Jerry, or whatever. And it's nice. But you sort of get it in perspective because you sort of, this thing's so worthy. But you know, you, but you work in the NHS for 30 years and you're part of a team that's helping save people's lives, working like shifts and all through the night. And nobody ever came in the lab in the morning and went, and shoot your eye and went, well done last night there, cracking last night. And I think you just got to get it in perspective, really. Whenever I interview anyone, I always put a shout out on kind of Twitter and Facebook and stuff. So, mm. you know, I'm interviewing this person. Have you got any questions? All right. And everyone, you won't be surprised to hear this, but so many questions from people going, is there going to be another Phoenix Nights? Are you doing a Christmas special? It's mad, isn't it? I've, I have mentioned the Christmas special, but I have to clarify, it's just in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to do a Christmas special. I just think it's the perfect setting for a Christmas special. And um, I don't think there's another series planned. I, I hear sometimes Peter say that he's thinking of doing a third series, but... There were three writers on it, and I've just done a film with Neil, Neil Fitzmaurice, and Justin Morris was on it, and a couple of others from Phoenix Nights, and none of us have heard anything. So I think it's unlikely, and I think you can leave it too long, can't you? I think let's just have fond memories of it. If you did a third series and it wasn't as good, it sort of tarnishes the memory a little bit, I think. But I think if you did a Christmas special, that would work. As I say, I've got this idea from there's going to be a gala show at the Phoenix. Jerry's got all geared up. He's going to be a big gala show. He's got all sorts of ideas. Brian Potter's going to be Father Christmas, obviously. Um, he hates that because he hates everybody. Ollie Murray's going to do a big nativity in the snooker room. That's not going down too well. And then Den Perry, the evil Den Perry from the Banana Grove, he kidnaps kidnaps them one at a time. We see their abduction and the, uh, he puts them in a disused airfield on the moors. And then you've, for the rest of the show, you've got um, a parallel of the Great Escape because that's on every Christmas. And they're trying to get out of the airfield and Den Perry's sat at home with his cigar watching Steve McQueen and co on the telly and then you keep cutting between them and you've got like Jerry St. Clair walking around with sand coming out the bottom of his pants where he's been digging a tunnel and you've got Brian Potter trying to go over the barbed wire on his, in his wheelchair and stuff like that. But as I say, it's all on my head. It's only me knows about it. <laughs> but maybe. But now yeah. the seeds are planted. Yeah. So you did that. You were a proper celeb then. You did the Royal Variety performance. Yeah, I did the Royal Variety. I was on right at the end. And it was a nightmare. I'll be honest with you, it's a tough gig. And they put me on, I mean, God bless them for thinking I could, I was strong enough to go on towards the end. I was on after Ozzy Osbourne and before Shirley Bassett. Wow. <laughs> right at the end. And it was in Wales, so they were waiting for Shirley. There were a lot of technical problems with the show because they had the Blue Man troupe on. I don't know if you've seen them. They're fantastic. But there was paint everywhere, so it took them about half an hour to clear up after them. 
so the show was like running really, really late. I'd been there since 8 o'clock in the morning. I was really exhausted and tired and very nervous. So I didn't get on until about 11 o'clock. And we'd been told we had to finish for half 10 because the Royal Train was waiting to take the Queen back to London from Cardiff, right? And Michael Parkinson and Sharon Osborne were comparing. And they were supposed to go on and do a banter and then get me on and give me a bit of a build-up. No time for that. So Michael Parkinson said, I'll just introduce you off stage. I went, yeah, just get me on, just get me on. So it's only 11 o'clock. Okay. He went, ladies and gentlemen, for your next night's wonderful, all the way from blah, 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 Dave Swaggy. So I walked on to nothing. I didn't get any applause. How rude's that? They just all, a lot of people just staring at me going, where's Shirley? Come on, where's Shirley? We've laughed enough now tonight. And it was horrible. I went on, and it was the Millennium Centre in Cardiff. I mean, all the people in the circle and stalls were cheering and clapping. You could just about hear them. But all the toffs, because they are toffs, aren't they? They're all there to mingle with the Queen and all that business. They just stood still, sat still. Nothing. And that's just rude, isn't it? Nobody. And I looked, and there wasn't a royal box. This is true. There wasn't a royal box. So the Queen and Prince Philip are on a plinth, just raised up in the middle of the audience, right in front of you. So you walk on, and, and at first you're knocked back because nobody's applauding. Then you look around, and the Queen and Prince Philip are just there in front of you. And I swear she looked at her watch. You don't need that. You don't need that after Queen, do you? When you walk on and go, hello, good evening. She goes like that. Jeez, train. <laughs> and it was a Casio, and it lit up her face, which was a bit mad, because she looked like a stamp. But in the same week, you did parking. And then, yeah, and then I went on. So I did okay on the Royal Variety, under all the circumstances, even though I started doing... My mind went to blank. When it all happened, this happens. And I did new material. The only thing I could think of was this new material I'd written about my granddad getting in and out of a walking bath that I'd not really perfected or honed or, you know, the walking baths you can buy. I was just saying, how can old people use them? They just, you can't fill them up and then get in, can you? They just end up with houses flooded. And I was just doing the whole thing about them, sat in the bath, old people, and then they can't open the door because the water's full. And then, so they have to take the plug out and then they're freezing to death. Then they get out and they shut the door behind them. They get the dressing gown on and get to the top of the stairs and go, what am I doing upstairs? Well, I'm having a bath. And they'll be there all year. And that's the routine I did, but I've never really worked on it at all. And halfway through, my mind's going, what are you doing? What are you doing? You idiot. Anyway, I got away with it, did all right. But then I was on Parkinson on the Saturday and um, it was just like, I need to redeem myself. I need to really go on and have a good one. And I was on with Paul McCartney and Rachel Weiss and Paul McCartney, massive hero of mine. So it was a big thrill and I had a good one. So result, you know, it was a great night. And didn't you bond with Paul McCartney? We didn't really bond, no, but we've got a lot in common in terms of, like, you know, vegetarianism. I've been a vegetarian for 20-odd years. We're both into animal welfare. I'm heavily into, always have been into animal welfare. And the great thing about Parkett is that when you're on, once you've done your bit, you stay on. You don't go off back to your dressing room. And so you sat there, and it takes, like, two hours to record, so you sat there just chatting with Paul McCartney and Rachel Weiss. My wife thought Rachel Weiss was a runner. <laughs> she was walking around backstage with, like, a North Face coat on, like, everybody wears, ready to go on stage. And my wife, who was with me, just, she, she didn't recognise it, just went up to her and said, we're at ladies' toilets. <laughs> and Rachel Weiss went, I'm not really sure. And she went, all oh, right. She said, I think they're around there. She said, can you show me? So Rachel Weiss, bless her, went, yeah, yeah, they're just around here. So I followed her, I followed her around, and I'm like, ah. <laughs> Mind you, she also did go up to Paul McCartney afterwards. My wife's got care. And she'd had a couple of drinks in the green room and she so wanted to meet him. She was in awe of him because she's the same. And we're both children in the 60s and 70s as well. And he's a massive hero to her with her animal work as well. And she's a more staunch vegetarian than I am. And I said, no, I'll introduce you to him. And we went over and he was really nice. And she went up to him and she could see she was completely starstruck. And he said, I am, Paul. And she went, why don't you get your Stella make some vegetarian boots? And I just looked at her and went... What? <laughs> what? She went, so I could think of. <laughs> and he actually said, I think she has done. And she went, yeah, but they're a thousand pound. I can't afford them. 
God bless him, you know, he just took it all in good part. <laughs> With animal stuff, mm. is it true that you used to just, like, take in animals oh, from... I'm the soft touch, everybody thinks it's my wife, but I've just... At one stage we had nine dogs, nine rescued dogs, three cats, four goats, 30-odd chickens, a turkey, sheep, you know... I just And they're just wonderful, and they just destroyed our back garden, but it was worthy, you know, and they were all destined for the chop, and I'm a, a soft... The turkey was brilliant. It was one of my successes, Colin Bertie. You know, when you uh, Christmas, when you're driving past a farm and it says, pick your own turkey for Christmas, and people go in. Anyway, I went in and I said, I'll, I'll have that one there. And he said, all right, shall I kill it and pluck it? I said, no, put it in the car. And I'd not really think... It was an instinctive thing, and, um, and I couldn't really put him in the boot. That's not fair, is it? So... I sat him in the passenger seat, right, so I drove home, and he was really well behaved, just sat there, this turkey. Ah, went, you left here, I know where I'm going. I wouldn't put his belt on, but you know what turkey's like. And I took him home, and I just went, there you go. And I freed him in the garden, I said, that's your Christmas present. And when we had him for years, but we had some released battery chickens, I mean, you know, they were sprung from a battery farm. Did you go and spring them? I did, with the first lot I got, but a bloke who was in a pub, uh, who they called Chucky, not because he looks like that mad puppet thing, but because he has a chicken farm. He said he sends a thousand off at a time. He said, "Do you want to come and choose a dozen?" And it was horrific actually going in and having to pick twelve. And he opened this cage, and this chicken went, "I'm away!" and jumped out the cage, <laughs> legging it down the battery farm floor. And they're pathetic. They've no like, no feathers hardly. Their feet are sore, and it's running away. And he, he just grabbed it really roughly and went, "Well, you don't want that scraggy thing." And I went, "Actually, <laughs> that that is one I want. I definitely want that one that made a bid for freedom. You know, chicken run." But at the same time, this bloke brought them in the middle of the night, four minutes, he said, you want some chickens? You want some chickens? And I said, yeah, I'll have, I've had a couple of dozen now, but I've got a bigger chicken up. So he brought them in a balaclava. I mean, he had it on. He didn't have chickens in a balaclava. They'd fall out, that'd be ridiculous. And we let them go in the garden. And the great thing about chickens is you've got so many different personalities, believe me. And so you put them in the hut, because you've got you get acclimatised to the hut, and you keep them in there for a day or two. Then you open the chicken flap there, and you get some that are really brave, that come straight out, straight away, and start looking around the garden but really weird because grass is bizarre because they've been on wire mesh all the time so they're walking really carefully putting the feet down like that and then you have some that won't come out at all keep coming to the door going ooh don't like that ooh and it takes some days to come out but at night when it goes dark they freak out because they've never had dark they don't have dark in battery farms it's light all the time because light stimulates some hormone through the retina and whatever and they lay more eggs so it goes dark and they all just go, whoa, and they all stop. So every night, until they get used to it for about a month, you just go out and try and find 36 chickens in your garden. <laughs> it's like a game going, there's one, just throwing them in the other, there's another, there's another. But then when they get really tame and you walk around the garden, they're so inquisitive, they're so... Are you, you're doing a bit of weeding, you're turning, you've got 36 chickens all stood behind you going, what are you doing? Can we come? And I'll tell you this story, my neighbours complained to the environmental health and this bloke came up from the council and said, I had a complaint about your chickens. I said, well, why? I've not got a cockerel. They're noisy. They love the little things. I clean up after them. They don't smell. I said, no, let me come in. It's a bit embarrassing. I won't show you the farm. Absolutely true. And, and he said, on the farm, it said, uh, they keep staring at her through the fence. She said, I've not paid £10,000 of my back garden landscapes and have my friends around for cocktails in summer to have 36 chickens staring at me through the fence. <laughs> it's disgraceful. Sometimes they cluck. Because they do. They bug us for that, chickens. But I just started trying to picture the scene that all the friends are there having the drinks of, you know, whatever, margaritas. And you've got 36 chickens lined up at the fence with their heads sticking through going, what are you doing? Can we have some? It's just, I thought, but are they so sweet? Oh, pet is that? Did you have to do anything about it? No, well, I didn't have to. He said, you don't have to do anything. But my wife, because she got a bit paranoid about it, built another fence before that fence so they couldn't actually get to that fence. But we had a tragedy because my turkey fell in love with one of the chickens because he got to that age 
that turkeys get to, that all animals get to, when he got a bit frisky. And he was magnificent. He was huge. And he was when he displayed, he was the boss of the garden. We had goats, as I say. We had sheep. We had, and um, my daughter's boyfriend, he's, uh, he used to be a professional rugby player, and he wouldn't go in the garden if the turkey was in. I'm not going in with him in. Because he was a boss. He would attack you. He was really, really king of the garden. But he fell in love with Leslie, one of the chickens. I give him names. And um, all I saw was I was in the conservatory one day looking out, and all the chickens were stood in a circle. And all I could see in the middle of it was the turkey's head bobbing up and down like that. And I thought, what are they doing? So I wandered out inquisitively, and he's got Leslie pinned to the ground, and he's giving her a scene to. And all the other chickens are stood around the outside going, what's he doing? And Leslie's going, will you get him off me? And um, he broke a leg. Oh, no! And I thought, I took it to the vets, and I thought he'll probably say brick it, which is a technical expression. And he didn't. He put a little plaster cast on it, bandaged it up, put a little plaster cast on the chicken, brought it back, put Leslie back in the garden there. Well, put her in a hutch first, a like, intensive care unit, then put her back in the garden. And she was all right. All the, other, the lovely thing was all the other chickens signed the cast, which is the best <laughs> thing, isn't it? Keep your pecker up, that sort of thing, you know. And then the dog etter. It's got a sad ending. <laughs> really? My dog Etta. Oh, no. My Alsatian. One of the Alsatians I rescued, Etta. <laughs> all your animals are all... For a laugh. Yeah, you, <laughs> you've got to keep them away no, from each other. I know. I'm aware we haven't got much time. Okay, I've got sorry. so much that I want to ask you about, so I'm having to kind of cherry pick. But actually, while we're talking about the animal stuff, mm. you do a lot of stuff for animal charity. Well, no, you did Celebrity Mastermind. Yeah. Got the highest score... Apparently so, yeah. ...that anyone's ever got. Ever got, Which, ever. what was your specialist subject? Human blood... <laughs> Did you do revision the night before? I did, you know, I wanted to do the red blood cell because it's a fascinating cell, as I'm sure you know. And the producer said, no, you can't do the red blood cell, that's much too narrow. <laughs> You're not, it's microscopic, never mind narrow. So they made me do human blood, which I thought, I've set myself up to be knocked down here because human blood, I worked in haematology, which is disorders of the blood. Human blood is such a big organ with biochemistry, immunology, coagulation. And I thought, I might just look a fool. But anyway, I, I, yeah, I came through it all right. And... Um, I've got quite a good score, as you say, yeah. And the charity that you did it for was Animals Asia. Animals Asia, yeah. Who, you've done loads of stuff. You went out to Vietnam. Yeah, them. I did. Uh, every year you get asked, it's, it's, it's a mad thing in this job, is you get asked to do so much for charity, I must get three or four requests a day, to well, whether it's signing DVD or, or appear at, a, just to raise the profile of charities. And it, it's, it's a great side to it, you know, and I do whatever I can, I do loads. And I got involved in Animals Asia, and so what I've done was, because there's so many, every year on the tour, I do at least three or four of the tour shows, all the money goes to charity. So it's easier than doing bits here and bits there, you know, and send them a big cheque rather than just bits and pieces. And one of the charities I chose two years ago was Animals Asia, because I got I got really moved by the plight of the moon birds, the China black birds, with the, the firm in China and Vietnam and the Far East for the bile, and they have a terrible, horrible, painful existence, and I wanted to do something about it. And if you do charity, quite often you get a nice letter saying your money helped raise funds for a, a new incubator on the special care baby unit, for instance. And that's great. But then I got a letter from Animals Asia saying you've raised enough money to free two birds. And that, for some reason that was more tangible. It's not really, but for me it was. And, uh, and they said, in fact, the Vietnamese government have allocated the next 80 birds to be released. If you'd like to come out, you can choose it personally. So, uh, yeah, we went out in the middle of the tour and... Um, went out to Vietnam and went to see these horrible, horrible farms and picked the burrs. And um, the sad thing was when we went to one farm, they were actually in the process of taking bile from the burrs. They're not supposed to do it. It's supposed to be illegal in Vietnam. And the, or the other major sadness is that two years later, it's still not been released. It's still there. My little spiky burr is still there. Did you film it? It's all been filmed. We filmed it like undercover um, and we showed a little bit on Granada television. You know, it's just bureaucracy. And it's also it's difficult going into these. I always say this, you go into places with so steeped in history and tradition 
that we don't understand. And it, that's not to say that it's wrong. And you can't go in saying to anybody, you shouldn't be doing that, you shouldn't be doing that, you should know better than that, because that's the worst thing you can possibly do. So there's just ways and means in negotiations with governments and bureaucracy and that. And is there any plans to do anything with the film? Like, would you, for something like that, would you ever stick it on as a DVD extra? Like, I know it's I so... I try to. I know my DVD's coming out for Christmas and yeah. I, I, this isn't a plug. It's only because you asked. I wanted to put it on and the people who were releasing the DVD said it was a bit too harrowing. Oh, really? Yeah, they said it was a bit too... But I don't think it is. I think it's a great extra. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a great contrast to the comedy and seeing the, the plight of these birds. And anyway, it's, it's a good like documentary. But also the opportunity to bring that sort of thing to people mm. who wouldn't necessarily see it, because yeah. they might not, you know, they'd be more drawn to seeing a comedy show than they would to be seeing it. Possibly, yeah. It would have raised the profile fantastically, yeah. Mm. And I think, I'm sure Animals Asia would have been thrilled with it. Can you stick it online, though? I probably could, couldn't I? Yeah, I've not really thought of that. I, think, I don't know whether I own it now, because I filmed it for Granada Television. I'd have oh. to look into that, but it's a possibility, yeah. We haven't talked about eight out of ten cats or oh bulls like man, there's so much. Okay, because we don't have much time, I'm going to ask you about just specific things that I'm really yeah. interested in. One is Shane Meadows. You've done some stuff with Shane Meadows. Who yeah, this, this was great. I wrote What's uh, this. Well, um, Mark Herbert, who um, is, is Warp Films, is part of Warp Films, who do all Shane Meadows stuff. They won the BAFTA obviously recently. He produced the first series of Phoenix Nights, and uh, we've stayed in touch. And I had this idea for a film about Sunday football. I've played Sunday football all my life. I love that whole, the dynamic of getting these lads in from different backgrounds. And, you know, I played in teams with doctors and lawyers and, and plasters and labourers and beggar men, thieves and scallies. And, and, but as soon as they pull that shit on, they're a band of brothers. And I just like exploring that. And they're a pub team. And there's lots, of, and you get a new landlord and the ethic of the change, change changes from playing for fun to playing for trophies. And, so there's all that. So I sent him the treatment and he showed it to Shea Meadows. And Shea Meadows really liked it and he said why don't we just film two days we'll film a, like a sample like a tease so we went over to Sheffield and we filmed it over two days we got got some good actors in it we got a guy out of uh, Lockstock the Frank Harper and we got a few good actors you recognise Seamus on it and uh, we just improvised it basically I said that's the script that's the idea and we just filmed all the training sessions with the team we filmed scenes in the pub and I put one or two clips on, on my website and they're on YouTube and uh, it was called Footballers Lives I've recently rewritten it with the World Cup in mind because it's World Cup next year and I just can't get people interested in it. Well, there's sort of people in sort of interested in it, but you know when you've done stuff that it's good, you know, without sounding arrogant or big-headed. I know it's the best thing I've written because I know it so well. And the, the tea that Shane's done is just fantastic, as you'd expect. And uh, the World Cup's coming up. I mean, millions and millions of lads would be interested, if it was done right, in watching... You watch a World Cup game and then you want to see how this pub team are doing and what's happening with them, you know, and it's perfect I think if it's done right and it would be done right well there's still time so people can see those clips online and on yeah. your website Yeah, I don't have time to massively go into this but just quickly you've got loads of stuff happening you're on tour at the moment yeah. there's also a DVD of the show the best medicine that you've got tour, yeah. which is awesome by the way have you watched it? And yeah 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 I think I won't I'm coming to London I know I'm coming to London soon I'm doing the Bloomsbury on the um, 29th is it? and I'm doing Croydon and Beck and but there's also this big show at the London on Palladium the yeah. on the 25th yeah. which which is you and Dara Brown and Lee Mack and Sean Locke and Paul Zenon. It's going to be a good night, isn't it? Yeah, yeah all yeah. in aid of the Wonder Bus. So yeah. that's happening on the 25th of October. And uh, so the book is He Took My Kidney and Then Broke My Heart. I know. Which, can you really quickly tell me about it? Well, when I go on tour, I always take the local paper on stage. I always do stories from the local paper because it's good. It's a good connection with the audience and they love it, they love local reference and all that. And I just thought when I started doing it, I thought I'd get one or two stories. I got hundreds. It's just inside of local papers. It just, it's just like mining a rich seam of comedy. It's unbelievable. And that, He Took My Kidney and Broke My Heart 
was a real story. It was from the Midlands, and a woman donated a kidney to her husband, and um, he needed a transplant, and he, he got better. And when he got better, he ran off with her best friend and left her. And it's usually the organ they reject, isn't it? That's what I think. And uh, so it's all little stories and big stories, bigger stories that are just mad. People wandering through Leicester dressed as a suicide bomber, getting arrested because they dressed like a suicide bomber. And you're thinking, well, how do they dress? Are we spending millions on national security when you can spot them by the way they dress in Leicester, you know what I mean? And there's serious ones, there's silly ones, but they're all absolutely authentic for my time on tour over the last year. So people can find out about that and get all the tour dates and about the DVD and watch these Shane Meadows films yeah. and all of this on your website, which is davespikey.co.uk. Dave, thanks so much. Oh, I've really on. enjoyed that. It's great. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes marsha.com forward slash off the mic.